Howdy, y'all. It's the past and the curious. I'm your host, Mick Sullivan, coming to you from Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome if you're just joining us. And if you are, let me tell you what we are. The History Podcast, but it's so much more than that. We talk about cultural literacy and music and all of the great stuff that makes people happy. Um, Each episode has two stories, true stories, that share a common theme. Uh, And we also typically have an original recording of a classic song and today is no different so make sure you stick around for that now listen if you like it you can help us you can subscribe on itunes that really really helps us in the rankings and lets other people find us you can tell people about us with your mouth Um, you could also leave a review which would be great leave a review on itunes leave a review on stitcher however you listen you can also download the kids listen app kids listen you got to check it out Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first story. Amber Estes Thieneman, my good friend, is going to read a story about Gertie the Dinosaur. It was February 8th, 1914, and Chicago was cold. February in Chicago usually is cold. But near the corner of Clark and Randolph Streets, undaunted people braved the weather and paid their fare of 25 to 50 cents for a seat at a vaudeville show in Chicago's Palace Theater. On the bill that night were eight different acts. Vaudeville theater was much like a variety show. An audience could expect to be treated to some music, some comedy, a bit of stage magic, even dance and short drama, all in small bits to keep the excitement going and the attention held. This night, the audience expected to see noted actor Theodore Roberts in a one-act play called The Sheriff of Shasta, and they were certainly anticipating the laughs, songs, and dances the delightful Farber sisters always brought to the stage. But they probably weren't expecting to witness cartoon history. Understand, animation wasn't brand new. Several Europeans had taken drawn images to the screen with early animation, and even the star-to-be of the night, or at least the creator of the star of the night, had made two animated films before this night's momentous debut. One of these films he created depicted a struggle between a drowsy man who just wanted a good night's sleep and a pesky mosquito who just wanted a good meal. As impressive as that was for the time, it was nothing compared to what the audience was about to see. In the annals of great stage names, we really don't think you could do much better than the moniker such as Zenus, which was Windsor McKay's actual real name. Turns out, though, he felt the name Zenus was a little too awesome, so he went by his middle name instead. Which, of course, means the name Zenus is still available if you find yourself in need of an awesome professional pseudonym anytime in the future. Anyway, beyond his name, there aren't a lot of available details about Windsor McKay's childhood. He was born in 1867, or 1871, in Canada, or Michigan. No one's really sure. But one thing is certain, he loved to draw. As soon as he could hold a pencil, he was creating imaginary worlds and beautiful images. This led him, as a young man, to Cincinnati, where he drew beautiful and elaborate posters for circus performers, carnivals, and museums. He eventually started drawing his posters in public view because people were so curious to watch him work. 
From there, it was on to the big city of New York, where he became a national name in 1905 as the creator of the beautiful space-age comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland. The imagination and creativity he put into this comic were far ahead of his time. No one had ever seen anything like it before, and still today, it is easy to appreciate. One day, as legend goes, Windsor was out and about with a friend to take in the sights of New York City. Ever the curious type, he stopped in at the Natural History Museum to see what might capture his imagination. As it would turn out, he became infatuated with a giant dinosaur skeleton on display. It's doubtful any of his friends could have guessed what huge idea was starting to bubble in his brilliant brain at the sight of the giant beast's bony leftovers, but it was his boldest idea yet. Later, he'd return to talk with the curator of the museum. Obviously, no living human had ever seen a dinosaur such as this actually move and walk, but Windsor was trying to imagine and visualize how it might have gone. He wondered how the bone structure, massive tail, tree trunk legs, and long neck would work on an actual living dinosaur. And the curator helped him speculate. It was important to him because Windsor was going to bring the dinosaur to life. And that he did. He created the first animated dinosaur in history. But the creature was to be more important than just that. After thousands of hours drawing, redrawing, and most certainly seeing dinosaurs in his sleep, Windsor finally made it to that February night in Chicago, the big debut. The theater was dimly lit and crowded with curious people chattering in their wooden seats with a buzz about the evening's entertainment thus far. When McKay walked out on stage, he had a smile on his face and a whip in his hand. Disregarding any nervousness that might come from an opening performance, he told the audience that he was going to introduce them to his pet dinosaur, a precocious brontosaurus named Gertie. Many were confused. Standing in the front of a projection screen, which showed a black and white landscape of a hillside, bank, and lake, McKay said, Gertie, yes, her name is Gertie, will come out of that cave and do everything I tell her to do. He directed their attention to the screen and said, Come out, Gertie, and take a pretty bow. Before their very eyes, the animated line drawing of the dinosaur cautiously poked its head out of a cave and appeared to amble towards the audience. After doing a pompy little dance, the dinosaur needed just a little more prodding to finally bow, which she gave, but not before eating an entire tree, trunk and all, in just a few bites, like you or I might eat a piece of broccoli. When Gertie bowed her long, lizardly neck and head, the audience went wild, clapping for what they found to be a completely adorable creature. She wasn't fearsome in the least. She was like a big, playful, goofy dog, only, you know she was a dinosaur. The rest of the short motion picture is still entertaining over 100 years later. Gertie is hilariously frightened by a woolly mammoth who saunters by at just a fraction of her size. The elephant-like creature named Jumbo, in a nod to P.T. Barnum's own prodigious pachyderm, ends up getting tossed into the lake after Gertie grabs him by the tail. The mammoth does get some sweet comical revenge, though, rest assured. November of that year, Windsor McKay worked out a deal to send the cartoon to theaters around America. Instead of his live-action banter, those parts where he stood in person appearing to give commands to the animated creature, he recorded an introduction, and then his commands were replaced by title cards. 
This was still in the silent film era. Because sound had not been matched to film yet, an audience could not hear his dialogue, so the words he said on stage were instead written on the screen between the action. Looking back, even Walt Disney himself pointed to Gertie as the most important development in cartoons. First, it brought to life a creature that had never been seen in this way before. But far more important than that, Gertie was an animal-like character with a distinct, playful, comic personality. Never had a cartoon given an animal such a thing. Think about what a huge step and how imaginative it would have been to first give an animated animal characteristics and traits beyond what they possessed in the natural world. Every cartoon character since, from Mickey Mouse to Bugs Bunny, owes Gertie her own deep bow in gratitude. She was the trailblazer. So I was having this dream that I was talking to Gertie and she was all like, and I was all like, it's quiz time, it's quiz time, it's quiz time, time, time. It's quiz time, it's quiz time, it's quiz time. It's cartoon quiz time. We're going to start off easy. What was Mickey Mouse's original name? The character inspired by a tame mouse in Walt Disney's office was originally named Mortimer Mouse. But Disney's wife ultimately convinced him to change it. Mickey Mouse made his debut in 1928 in one of the first cartoons with sound, Steamboat Willie. Okay, good job, everybody. Here comes question number two. Do you know which founding father published the first political cartoon? Ben Franklin owned the Pennsylvania Gazette, which published the famous Join or Die cartoon. According to the National Constitution Center, this 1754 drawing is the first political cartoon in American history. The drawing of a snake cut into eight segments was intended to convince people of the importance of the original American colonies remaining unified. Thanks, Ben. Question number three. One comic strip of sorts eventually led to books, TV shows, and even a chain of museums featuring some pretty unbelievable stuff. Can you guess what it is? Robert Ripley began highlighting incredible sports feats in a comic called Champs and Chumps. But soon, he expanded to showcase unusual accomplishments, bizarre events, and remarkable people all over the globe. The comic was called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yes, sir. So sometimes the people in power aren't the best people. And this story, read by our friend Jason Lawrence from up in New York, is going to tell you about one of those. He was a politician in New York in the 1800s. But the man who brought him down was a cartoonist. Boss Tweed was not a good guy. And not in the way that he was a boss, and some bosses can seem mean. Boss was a nickname. His full name was William Magyar Tweed, 
and he was a politician in New York City. As the head of a group of politicians called Tammany Hall, he was the most powerful politician in the entire city. The problem was that most of these politicians were crooked. That is, they were engaged in illegal activity. These men were criminals, and Boss Tweed was the worst of them all. But because they were more powerful than anyone else, there was really nothing to be done. Throughout the 1860s and much of the 1870s, Tweed was in control of every name that appeared on voting ballots. It would never matter who was actually elected when the people voted. His man would get in either way. But more than that, he cheated the city out of millions of dollars. Sometimes he would sell fake leases or run insurance scams, but most of the money came from padded bills. Here's how it worked. From his position of power, he, or at least one of his cronies, was in control of the city treasury, where the money's kept. But Tweed was also in control of work contracts. To understand, imagine the city needed a sidewalk paved, and that it's a job that could be done for, let's say, $1,000. Tweed would have hired someone he was familiar with to do the job for 2000 or 3000 or more of the city's money. This was money paid by the taxpayers of the city, and they expected it to be used carefully. But Tweed did not care about that. He cared about filling his pockets with as much as possible. So in this sidewalk scam, the person who provided the labor would get the $1,000 it actually cost, plus some extra, say $500, for being a part of the ring and not making trouble for Tweed. Meanwhile, Tweed and his circle of friends kept the rest. That's called kickbacks. If you want a real-life example of something he did, look no further than the New York County Courthouse. It's a beautiful, classical building still standing and in use today. In 1858, when the city decided to build it, they reserved $250,000 for its construction. But with Tweed and his cronies involved, it wound up costing much more than that. Tweed hired companies to help who would cheat with him. One single furniture bill totaled $125,000 alone. That's some fancy furniture, I guess. And one day's work of a tweed friend making cabinets for the building cost the city another $125,000. Oh, and the marble they used for outside of the building? Yeah, it came from a quarry that tweed owned. Do you think he charged a fair price? Absolutely not. By the time it was done, what was originally intended to cost $250,000 cost between $8 and $12 million. The tweed ring was so sneaky that people still aren't even sure how much money they stole. Before long, he was one of the richest men in New York. He owned property all over town, dressed impeccably, and was usually wearing an enormous grapefruit-sized diamond pinned to his huge, powerful chest. You'd think most of the poor people were angry about this, right? Well, not really. Firstly, Tweed was famous for giving things like turkeys to the poor at holidays. So long as they got a few indulgences from him, they were okay. Most of them would never find out about the crimes he was committing. And he knew it. Why? Well, most of these people were immigrants. New York was populated by Germans, Russians, Irish, and more. While some could speak English, almost none of them could read. So when the reporters for newspapers hoped they could get him voted out by writing stories exposing his crimes, they were sorely mistaken. Almost no one paid attention at all. Have you ever heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words? A man named Thomas Nast believed a picture could be worth a billion words or more if your audience couldn't read any words in the first place. 
Nast was a cartoonist, the kind who drew political cartoons and newspapers, and he worked for one of the largest papers of the time, Harper's Weekly. This was the 1800s, and the only way to really get the news at the time was through the paper. But Nast knew, just as Tweed did, that the citizens in Tweed's district couldn't read, and as long as they couldn't read, most of them would never know about Tweed's dastardly deeds. If Tweed was going to come down, then cartoonist Thomas Nast knew he had to be the man to do it. And he'd do it with nothing more than pictures. So every week, the newspapers were littered with cartoons lampooning Boss Tweed and his crew of crooked Tammany Hall pals. Huge wads of cash would be falling out of the pockets of the comic devilish figures as they hid their treachery from the poor. Others showed Tweed like a king seated on a throne of money and wearing the dome of City Hall like a crown on his head. Perhaps the most famous one is a cartoon of Tweed's hulking body decked out in a fine three-piece suit, huge diamond on his chest, and where his head should be was nothing but a big bag of money. It clearly made the point that Tweed was crooked and thought of nothing else but money. He didn't care about the people. He only cared about the people not turning on him. Slowly, the illiterate voters of New York City began to realize that the guy plying them with the occasional turkey dinner might not be such a great guy. The cartoons put pressure on the police to charge him with some of his crimes. Tweed grew furious. He screamed at his cronies, Stop them darn pictures! So a group of Tweed's friends approached Nast in disguise and told him that they were there on behalf of a rich New York art patron. This mysterious art lover was incredibly impressed with the work of Nast that she had seen in the papers. So much so, in fact, that she wanted to pay $100,000 for Nast to travel to Europe so he could study art amongst the greatest works and artists in the world. Really not a bad offer when you think about it. But Nast saw through it. He figured these men were not here to make his dreams come true. They were here because Tweed wanted to get rid of Nast, and this would be the cleanest way to do it. There's no way Thomas Nast could hurt Boss Tweed by publishing his inflammatory cartoons from across the ocean. But on the other hand, a few years in Europe focused on art and art alone? It was an enticing offer for Nast just the same. So he played along. $500,000, he said, as the men stared dumbfounded. After some more discussion, the men agreed. 500000 it would be. Nast could go pack his bags. The European art world awaited. But Thomas was never really planning to go. He was just playing with them. Now, we don't know exactly what he said next, but we bet it was along the lines of, Sorry, suckers. JK, I'm not going anywhere. I have a crooked politician to bring down. Look for my next cartoon in the paper this week. You're not going to like it. Later, haters. So the cartoons continued to lampoon Tweed, and people grew to understand that this powerful man was taking advantage of an illiterate public. Outrage grew and grew as the cartoons further depicted Tweed and his men as outright thieves. Soon, the law enforcement officials got heavily involved. In 1871, Tweed was charged with, among other things, fraud. The city tried to recover $6 million of the money Tweed had stolen. Remember when we said no one was really sure how much money he stole? Well, it was much more than this. Some people say $30 million, some say as much as $200 million. But he didn't even have the $6 million on hand to pay, so to jail he finally went. But debtor's jail was not the same as our normal ideas of prison. 
he was actually allowed to be escorted by a jailer on occasional visits home, a perk he took advantage of. On one visit, he told the jailer that he was going to head upstairs to give his sick wife a goodnight kiss before they headed back to the jail. Instead, though, he climbed out of the bedroom window into a carriage he had arranged to be there. Off he fled, and for months he was on the loose. He fled south, eventually crossing the Gulf to Cuba, where he posed as a regular workman aboard a ship. Can you imagine the richest man in the East, the man with the giant diamond pin, working sweaty and dirty for a few cents a day? But he knew he wasn't safe. He was a wanted man. When he heard that the authorities had a hunch he was in the area, he sailed across the ocean to Spain. In Spain, though, their police force had warning of his arrival from America. When they asked how they would identify the fugitive boss Tweed, they were given newspaper cartoons. Thomas Nast had drawn him so many times in so many ways that if they got familiar with the very cartoons that had forced Tweed to flee in the first place, they'd surely find their man. And sure enough, they did. The cartoons brought Tweed down again as his likeness was matched to a Nast drawing as he got off a boat at port. His days as a high-class criminal and crooked politician were over, thanks to Thomas Nast and his pen. Grab your coat and get your hat Leave your worries on the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Can you hear the pitter-pat And that happy tune as your step Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street But well, I used to walk in the shade With those blues on parade But I'm not afraid This rover crossed over If I ever have a cent I'd be rich as Rockefeller Gold dust had my feet on the sunny side of the street. Okay, folks, as always, this has been a great pleasure to create. I'm amazed. We're already into our second year, and we're honored that you listen to this episode. Hope you go back and listen to all the other episodes if you haven't done that already yet. There's some really great stuff back there. Um, I want to say thanks to Amber for reading the story about Gertie, to Jason for reading the story about Boss Tweed, and a special thanks 
Tachaska, Leilani, and Mirabelle Power from Book Power for Kids, which is an awesome Kids Listen member podcast. you got to check them out. They might be the coolest family ever. Um, I've heard the outtakes, and I've heard the show. It's fantastic. Be nice, keep learning, care about history, and share what you learn with somebody. Until next time, I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious. Stop them darn pictures! <laughs>